At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. Cryptid Keeper Podcast, the podcast for cryptids and their keepers. That's us. And if you're listening, it's you too. I'm Alex Flanagan. And I'm Addison Peacock. And we are perpetually grateful for your patience over the past couple of weeks of things have taken a bit of an unusual turn, not only in our release schedule, but in the world order as a whole. That's right, folks. If you have not looked out your window, everything is on fire. And it's Mm -hmm. a righteous fire is the thing. Like, that's the thing is some of it, uh, or a lot of it is stuff that needs a burning. <laughs> the thing is, the world's on fire and I'm cheering for the fire. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I'm on the fires team. Yeah, exactly. So, um, in case there was any question, uh, in case there was any question about it, uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, Black Lives Matter. They do. It's true. And just because we've resumed production does not mean that the conversation is done, does not mean that the fighting is done, does not mean that any, uh, any of the action... Uh, that's been happening uh, is over. Just wanted to go ahead and clarify that right now. Because um, I, I, I see, I know people are getting tired and I know that sustained fighting is difficult, but you know, we have to, we have to keep it up. We have to keep yeah, it up. Yeah, 100%. Especially when, when stuff actually starts to come of it. That's the time. That's not the time to ease off. That's the time to put your foot on the gas. It's really it's important. I've been thinking a lot lately about, um, something that was reiterated to me over and over and over again in many a uh, public school and university band class, actually, which is when you're, and this is going to seem like a detour for a second, but you know, I love Mm -hmm. a good metaphor. So when you are learning to play an instrument on your very own, one of the hardest things to do is breathing uh, to sort of suddenly learn that like, not only do you have to continue the process of breathing in and out, which has been an involuntary process for most of your life, I would assume, but to channel that into something useful and then to not only do that, but learn how to like keep supporting yourself on your own and not pass out. Like that's a hard hurdle. But when you get to the point where you start playing with other people and in a large group, then there comes this sense of responsibility with your breathing where like, not only are you again, like having to keep your your human body alive so you can keep playing the flute or the trumpet or whatever it is you have in your hands. And also to use your breath for something else, which is to produce music in a very controlled way and to learn to become more efficient with that process as you go on. But if you are sustaining a note at the same time as another person, which you inevitably will be at some point, chances are you're going to have to breathe in the middle of that note if it is going on for any significant amount of time. The trick is to not breathe at the same time as the person next to you. And Mm -hmm. the reason I've been thinking so much about this is because I think that that's something that is pretty universally applicable advice. If you're trying to keep a sustained sound going, or if you were trying to keep a sustained motion going or a sustained movement going, you have to breathe. Mm -hmm. You have to. You're human. (laughs) You know, you can't keep doing that indefinitely forever, unless you're good at circular breathing, but that doesn't really suit the purpose of this metaphor. Um, (laughs) Unless the metaphor is to say that Kenny G is going to be amazing at civil protest. I'm not really sure where this is going. But anyway, Mm -hmm. the point is, if you are 
doing any sort of prolonged action, you need a period of rest or a period of like renewal. You need to refresh yourself. You need to take something back in after you're putting everything out. But you have to come back in when you're done Yep, <laughs> is the first thing. And you have to be mindful to take those breaks in confluence with the people around you. So there's sort of a partnership that has to happen there where you have to either communicate ahead of time with whoever your stand partner might be and say, I'll breathe here, you breathe here. Or you have to be a good listener and realize like, okay, I have to be sympathetic to the needs and the conditions of the people around me. I have to pay attention. And when somebody else takes a break, that's time for me to push just a little bit harder. But when they come back in, maybe I can step back for a second. Mm -hmm. All of that being said, I think that one of the most important things that we're learning right now, all of us as a, a people or as a movement or as a population, is that it's important to know when to step back. It's important to know when to step up. But yes. what's most important is learning the tactics that will allow you to function cohesively and effectively as a group and not as an mm -hmm. individual. So that's my piece for the front of this episode. And 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 I I agree. Um, I've actually I've heard it articulated similarly using the the same kind of language of talking about like a choir of voices and singing. Yeah, and it's something you do as well. You stagger your breathing in a choir like that so that you can sustain a note for longer. And I I didn't want to go back to business as usual, making the show as if nothing is going on. That felt disingenuous, and honestly, it was like it, it just would feel wrong to me. So I um, totally. wanted to say something at the top and but also not belabor the point too much because a lot of the stuff I'm saying has been said a lot uh, a lot better by a lot of mm -hmm. people more qualified to say it than me. Um, and I've been doing my best over on my on my socials and stuff to amplify those voices as much as I can. And I'm also probably no not probably I'm saying this now to hold myself accountable. I'm gonna put some uh, some links and some resources in the description of this episode as well. Uh, right places, some places to donate and some petitions to sign because uh, even though the officers who murdered George Floyd have been arrested, that is not the end of the fight and there's a lot of justice that needs to be served. So I'm going to put some stuff in the description of the episode. Uh, and I really encourage you to, if you haven't, at the very least, like put your, put your signature on a petition. Do like email a rep, like call somebody. Everyone can office. do something. Do Everyone something. has some yes. place to be and some role to play. Um, yes. And if you haven't found yours yet, I encourage you to actively look for mm -hmm. it. Um, there's a, a writer that I follow on Twitter who said it quite well. And she basically said, like, like uh, uh, she's uh, she's agoraphobic and she writes from that perspective. It's Sarah Benincasa. And she said, um, every revolution needs secretaries. <laughs> yeah. Basically, like, if you can't be out on the on the ground, there are things you can do from home. You have skills that are useful. So just like look for. Definitely. Look for where you can you can be uh, the most help. Anyway, yeah, I just, you know, it's an important, we're in an important moment and it, and it would feel wrong to uh, proceed with business as usual without calling attention to it. So. Hard to agree. Um, but at the same time, uh, you, we are also a cryptid podcast, so. We are a cryptid podcast and we're going to talk cryptids today. Um, so if memory serves, it is my turn. It is your turn. Okay, it's great. I was while. worried that I did research for nothing and you were going to come in with something really cool and I was going to be like, great. No, and then I was just going to save this for next week. It's fine. What did I... What was the last... We talked about the kitsune. That was it. It was the kitsune. That's what I did. Okay. And then... Yeah, I think that was the last one. That, that was the about. last one. So today we're going somewhere very different. Today I have brought for you the Oklahoma octopus. 
Oh, very good. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with the Oklahoma octopus? No, it sounds like a nickname you give somebody for being a handsy person from Oklahoma. Oh, that's kind of fun. The Oklahoma octopus is not that, actually. It is an octopus in Oklahoma. I mean, the name would suggest <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, this one is uh, pretty much exactly what you what you see on the tin, is what you get. There's a lot of interesting sort of discussion and discourse surrounding the Oklahoma octopus. It's one of those things where when you look it up, some people will tell you it's an urban legend and there are dozens of sightings. Um, if you look elsewhere, it will seem to be that it is largely unsubstantiated. Whatever it is, I think the alliteration helps. I think it's very fun to say Oklahoma octopus. And we are going to get into what information we can. It's kind of a fascinating trick, and I hope you will join me along the way. The Oklahoma octopus is a cryptid generally said to inhabit some freshwater man-made lakes of Oklahoma, three of them specifically. Those three lakes, and we'll talk about all of them today, are Lake Thunderbird, uh, Lake Ulaga, and okay. Lake Tenkiller. Hmm. So yeah, those three lakes specifically, um, all three of these lakes, and again, this is important, are man-made. This will be relevant when we start talking about like potential origins of this cryptid, where it comes from, how it got there. Uh, and they're all freshwater lakes, as you would expect in the middle of Oklahoma. No oceans there, it would seem. I mean... <laughs> I mean so here's the interesting thing about uh, the Oklahoma octopus. What were you going to say? I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't have a... I wasn't. Left speechless, I see. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. The thing is that there is not, as you would expect, any footage of the Oklahoma octopus. We could dream, we can hope, but that will not prove to be the case. However, what we do have are mayhap unusual frequencies, commonalities of drownage victims in these lakes. Oh no, that's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> Yeah, so there, uh, that seems to be the main sort of, like, quote-unquote evidence for the Oklahoma octopus, and, like, the thing that supports stories and sort of feeds into this urban legend and keeps these things going is that a lot of people drown in these three man-made lakes. That's troubling. And it is troubling, and uh, almost as troubling as the idea of a large freshwater octopus in Oklahoma. Okay, so let's talk about the Oklahoma octopus. I am okay. sort of... Assuming, operating under the assumption that uh, all of our listeners know what an octopus is. But in the event that you do not, the Oklahoma octopus, like every other octopus, is most likely a cephalopod, which would, in this particular case, make the Oklahoma octopus the only freshwater-dwelling cephalopod species. I have, of course, assuming that the Oklahoma octopus is a cephalopod and that it resides long-term yeah. in these waters. Um, octopi have been known in rare circumstances to survive for brief periods of time in fresh water, but we do not currently, to my knowledge, unless science is hiding secrets from me yet again. Maybe. Um, <laughs> maybe. We do not currently have any extant examples of freshwater dwelling populations in the long term. We don't have populations of octopi that we know of that are inhabiting freshwater, breeding there, rearing their young there, existing there for long periods of time. And for that, we, we should have be thankful. And that we should be thankful. We're luckier than the people of Oklahoma. But what we have seen is instances of survivability in freshwater. So, mm. for example, an octopus that maybe you know, wanders from its body of water 
upstream into a freshwater environment or an octopus that creates a grand heist sort of situation and, and jailbreaks itself, which octopuses have been known to do. They're incredible escape artists. They really are. They can get through any opening that is the size of their beak or bigger. They can do it. They're it's, really difficult to contain at aquariums because of how easily they get through really small openings. They're really smart and kind of fascinating. It's really interesting. They actually kind of scare me, but I, I just was going to say they kind of scare me, but they're also kind of amazing, and I like to look at them. But they also... They're very smart and really impressive, and if I ever, but they are terrifying. If I ever met one in real life, if I ever met an octopus, you know, shook one of its tentacles and said hello, I would feel very, very threatened just by being there. I would feel afraid. I feel like if I were to shake an octopus's tentacle, it would definitely be one of those handshakes where, like, you are trying to assert your dominance, and I feel like the octopus would squeeze back harder and look me directly in the eye, and I would feel very uncomfortable. (laughs) Uh, No, I don't like it. (laughs) And I really don't like that they have Um, beaks. I Yeah, don't don't love the beak thing. Have you ever dissected a cephalopod? No. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know why I sounded so horrified. I did a squid dissection in AP Bio. Um, it was interesting. Oh. You can pull out the ink sack when you're done and write with it. I've never, I've never dissected a cephalopod. <laughs> yeah, we did. Um, I, okay, so again, first of all, to flash back to my high school days, I was quite the biology nerd. Mm-hmm. Um, I my my AP Bio teacher was very intense, very extremely good at what he did. Um, Mr. Eric Kincaid was actually a, a gift to this earth, still is to my knowledge, but I can only speak to when I had him in class. Um, but incredible, incredible scientist, brilliant man. And our AP Bio class was structured such that everyone who took the class passed the test. This was a hundred percent success rate guarantee, and I think fifty percent at the time I had him of all of his students ever that he'd had had gotten a five on it. So it was like an intense class, very rigorous. And what this meant was when you finished the AP exam, you didn't have any other work to do. You didn't really care. So like we mm-hmm. got to the end of the year, like we did all this hard studying, and then there was like a solid two weeks after the AP exam was done and we'd all done fine, that it was just like, okay, well bring snacks to class and figure something out. So um, we had maybe about two weeks of just like (laughs) screwing around in the bio lab when he had like all the end of year kits that he wasn't going to use next year. And so there was definitely a period of time where he was like, hey, these are all the leftover dissection labs I have. Do you kids want to do anything with them? Oh my God. And so we were just doing voluntary dissections in the bio lab for like two weeks and like gram staining and it was wild. Anyway, um, sure. But yeah, so we we had uh, a cephalopod dissection that we did, which was actually very fascinating. But it was just like we had, again, these these leftover opportunities to sort of explore at our own pace. And, and one of the things I remember being is he was like, yeah, we don't do this one because, um, you know, kids kind of get reckless with it. But if you guys want to do it, you can. And you, you can literally pull out the ink sack of the squid and write with it at the end of the lab. And it's quite interesting. That's ghoulish i like it it is it is truly wild but you make a very good point the beak is terrifying when you are dissecting a squid and like you sort of pull back these little leggies and there's a gaping maw um it's it's terrifying i can see why they're a very scary monster they're aliens um i was researching the other day i got a job um uh, I won't spe- I won't say for where because i don't know if i'm allowed to but i got a job writing just like scripts for like a clickbait YouTube channel, mm-hmm. basically. Nice. Um, yeah, like a freelance writing job. And I was researching for this video about aliens. And did you know, Alex, that there not only is like, do people like talk about the idea that octopi and things like that are like, what probably we can use as a blueprint for what alien life might look like, but there literally are 
30, there were 33 scientists who published a paper, officially published a paper, where they posited that octopi are from space. That's phenomenal. And yes, it has been highly contested. Yes, it has been highly controversial. But there were 33 scientists that published a paper claiming that octopi could possibly be literal aliens. And they they had some kind of explanation about like how there's some disparity in terms of like being able to map the genetic line between octopi and like what their proposed ancestors are and things like that. Mm-hmm. But the evidence is not necessarily all that compelling. I'm not going to lie to you, but it's amazing just to know that there's an official published paper. Wow. Again, 33 that, scientists. That paper is like... This paper that you were describing to me is like the infinity gauntlet of the Michael Crichton literary universe. <laughs> yep. It's got aliens. It's got scientists writing papers. It's got squids. It's got everything. It's sphere. It's Andromeda strain. I love it so much. It's got everything you um, want. Anyway, it's got um, literally everything you could want. I also do believe, and um, <laughs> listeners, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I'm almost positive that I have heard you say in an episode of Cryptic Keeper before that, like, your dream would be to write for a top 10, like, listicle video. I think. Actually, my dream this was This has come to, up before. My dream was to be the voiceover person for a top 10 oh, listicle thing. But, I you see. know, one well, this step, is step one. This is step one. This is your journey begins today. Top 10 wild facts about aliens. I don't actually know what the title of the video is. Anyway, don't ask questions. I don't, again, I don't know what I'm allowed to say. <laughs> um, but uh, I came across that in my research and I really didn't think it was ever going to, or I knew it would eventually come up on this podcast. I just didn't know it would be uh-huh. quite so soon. <laughs> Well, you know, no time like the present. Um, if we're going to talk about squid aliens today, might as well be the day. I actually did not intend for this episode to go in an alien direction at all, and I'm so sorry that I derailed by talking extensively about um, yeah, also, voluntary um, dissections that also, I did Alex, in high school. You yeah. keep saying squid aliens, and might I remind you they are octopus aliens. Octopus aliens. My bad. Cephalopod aliens, as <laughs> it were. <laughs> We're going to talk more about the Oklahoma octopus, though. I yeah. was telling you about um, the fact that octopi can live for brief periods of time in freshwater, and I just want to back mm-hmm. that up with a site. Um, there was a case of a common octopus being caught at Lake Conway in Faulkner County, Arkansas, which this uh, article from the Cryptids Wiki cites as being most likely a released pet that survived long enough to cling onto the gates of the lake's dam. No! That's not really important, except that it's wild to me to think of a released pet as being an octopus in Arkansas. That somebody in Arkansas had a pet octopus and they decided when they were done with it, the best thing to do with it was to release it into the wild. And not and to put it in the lake. Uh-huh. <laughs> not like, hey, local aquarium, do you want this octopus? Just go. Be free. Can't you see I don't want you anymore? <laughs> Just take it out in a tent. I'm imagining carrying one of those massive saltwater fish tanks with the octopus in it. They need a bit. They need some, they want, they need some space. I'm assuming it probably had a big, a big like uh, habitat and just you could probably that carry it in a jar. You carry put it in a jar. Alex, know how big is the jar? Octopi can squeeze themselves into very small spaces. That I'm doesn't not mean saying they that- like it. No, but I'm sure they don't like being thrown into a lake either. Clearly this person was not concerned with what the octopus wanted. I know. 
I'm not saying that I, I hope this person was not keeping them in a jar in their home. I'm certainly not condoning this as behavior for octopus owners. I think if you're going to keep an octopus, you should be responsible about it. But I'm just saying that I don't think this person probably took their state of the art aquarium tank out to release their pet octopus into Lake Conway. I also, by the way, want to say I want to counter your take right there. And I want to say I don't believe anyone should have an octopus as a pet because if you have an octopus as a pet, you're just trying to play God and I don't trust you. If you have an octopus, if you if you think you have an octopus as a pet, what you actually have is an octopus that is keeping you under observation. <laughs> that octopus is keeping you as a pet. And that octopus is keeping you as a pet, or it's waiting for any chance that you will give it. Any any glaring error you might make in the course of your long life where it can flip the script on you and turn the tables. If you leave a pair of scissors next to that aquarium. That octopus will kill you in the dead of night. It's waiting for <laughs> and you its will, chance. You will not see it coming. <laughs> oh, no. Um, every time I say octopus, I'm just seeing in my head the way that they move, the way that they ambulate through the world makes me so uncomfortable, the way that they just, the way that they move their bodies. Mm-hmm. I don't have any more words to say about it. It's just the way that their bodies move and the way that they... No, move. you're so right. It's deeply troubling. You know what makes it worse? What? <laughs> Putting the word Oklahoma in front of it. Are you freaking kidding me? You're right. Take me back to take me back to Oklahoma. <laughs> of all the places for an octopus to be, I'm pretty sure Oklahoma should not be one of them. No. Anyway, um, according to sightings, to eyewitness accounts, as well as rumors and urban legends, or any, you know, scrap of information that we could piece together somehow, the Oklahoma octopus is about the size of a horse no. and resembles an octopus. No. Sorry. <laughs> How big is it, Alex? It's about the size of a horse. I didn't realize that a horse-sized octopus was on my list of, like, fears. But when Fierce. you said that, when you what are you scared of? Horse-sized octopi. <laughs> when you said it, it made my like my body like constricted. Like I felt my blood vessels like suck themselves in. I don't know how to describe it. Constricted, you say? No, Alex, please. <laughs> <laughs> Much like uh, you will be in the tentacles of the Oklahoma octopus. If you ever dare venture to the wildlands of Oklahoma, where the octopus roams free. I'm, I'm covered in goosebumps. I'm so upset. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> we have to get through this. No, I know, the I know, Oklahoma I know. octopus is about the size of a horse and resembles an octopus. Very Again, good. thank you for that cryptids wiki. Thank you, Detective. Tentacles- and leathery reddish-brown skin. Leathery? Mm-hmm. They're not leathery. Oh, I'm sorry. Would you like to do this episode? No, no, I'm sorry. I wouldn't. Would you like to tell me about the Oklahoma octopus, Addison? I didn't study for the test. I'm not Because ready. it seems like you have some information that maybe I am lacking. <laughs> Alex, I'm sorry. I didn't study for this test. Please keep going. It just going. sort of seems like you have the inside scoop, maybe, on the Oklahoma octopus, and that I should be deferring to you and your wisdom. No. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell, tell me about the octopus. <laughs> oh my goodness. So again, the Oklahoma octopus is said to inhabit these three different man-made lakes in Oklahoma, which would be Lake Thunderbird, Lake Ulaga, and Lake Tenkiller. Um, they're all freshwater man-made bodies. So that begs the question you may be wondering about this time, as I was myself when I began my reading. Does Oklahoma octopus refer to one octopus, or does Oklahoma octopus refer to a species of octopus? When we say the Oklahoma octopus, do we mean like a guy or do we mean a, a collective? Um, that's actually unclear, but I do think that it's referring to the potential of there being a population mm-hmm. of octopi. 
and that the Oklahoma octopus is a species in the same way that we might refer to the African elephant. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's sort of what this is meant to be. Uh, It is not, unfortunately, one large sea monster, because every tale of this thing does involve it being in these three different very specific lakes and it's not it doesn't seem to be like it's a discrepancy in where people think that this one creature lives um nor do i think the octopus is like skittering out of the lake at night and sprinting across to a different one although that would be but wouldn't it be great quite a lot to deal with (laughs) yeah we can dream wouldn't it be something (laughs) come on out kids it's time for the octopus migration the great octopus migration of one octopus. <laughs> you bring your kids out on the cross, Oklahoma. <laughs> your kids come out to watch one horse-sized octopus clamber out of the lake and just sort of drag itself across the road. <laughs> uh, just heave its body into a second lake. <laughs> oh, I don't like that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyway, um, prevailing theories about if this thing is real, where it might have come from, all sort of seem to discuss and allude to the possibility of an evolved population or species of octopus rather than just like one freak monster. Right. So we're going to operate under the assumption that what we're dealing with here is a freshwater creature that has maybe been adapted from the form of octopus, marine octopus that we are more uh, used to seeing and that this is just an unusual population of them. Okay. How many are there? Now, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, that I actually don't know, but here's an interesting thing for you. Okay. Under the diet section of the cryptids wiki, mm-hmm. uh, I really just, I'm going to read this directly to you because the way that it's phrased is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. The species most likely has a similar diet to a marine octopus with it eating freshwater species similar to its marine counterpart's prey. However... The drownings in lakes where it is reported to live could be caused by the octopus. An octopus of this size can have up to eight strong tentacles to pull an unwilling human underwater. No. I know, right? No. (laughs) The next section is titled Controversy. Due to the lakes being man-made, the drownings are most likely the result of people getting drunk and not paying attention while swimming. Oh my god. Also... Also, drowned victims have no sucker lacerations on their bodies. Okay. I now, mean, what gets me is that that part is phrased as controversy. That doesn't seem particularly controversial to me. It just seems like some fact that somebody got. <laughs> no, that's pretty... It's a controversy, Alex. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, the um, the octopus's supposed primary diet would be people, although I don't, it I don't probably like it. also eats freshwater fish or something. I don't like that. Yeah, I mean, I'd be a little bummed if you did. I don't like that. I don't want to... I, I, like, I'm going to take a stand here, and I'm going to say I don't like that the octopus maybe eats people. It's not It's not good, is the thing about it. Um, let's hop over to an article from the Scientific American blog. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, and this comes to us from a column that is titled Octopus Chronicles, and the headline, Could an Octopus Really Be Terrorizing Oklahoma's Lakes? This was written December 19th, 2013 by an author named Catherine Harmon Courage, which incredible name. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah. Tulsa, Oklahoma. As the rate of unexplained drowning deaths has reportedly crept up in Oklahoma's placid lakes, some observers have turned to an unusual explanation. A freshwater octopus. (laughs) 
The legend of a killer cephalopod lurking in the murky waters of the states Lake Thunderbird, Lake Tenkiller, or Lake Ulaga has been surfacing for at least the past several years. Animal Planet's Lost Tapes even aired an investigation of this crypto creature. Now, keep that in mind, because we will talk some about the Lost Tapes episode in a minute. It is relevant. All right. This beast, or beasts, dubbed the Oklahoma octopus, reportedly drags swimmers down with its many strong arms. How could a sea creature have found its way to lakes in the heartland? This unlikely animal, people have explained, might be a rare living fossil, left over from its time tens of millions of years ago, when this part of the country was indeed a shallow sea and a perfect octopus habitat. Over the millennia, this particular line of octopuses has adapted to freshwater, these proponents suggest. The octopus is a marvel of adaptation, thanks in large part to its short generation time, just months to a year, and its thousands upon thousands of offspring. I have to say I wasn't really looking for that much information on octopus reproduction. I simply do not like thinking about it. But if we are looking at, theoretically, a creature which would adapt well over generations fairly rapidly, the octopus is a prime candidate. Mm -hmm. No, it is. Like, one, each in individual generation of octopus seems to be fairly adaptable. They're very smart. They can operate under some fairly diverse conditions for a sea creature. When you consider how easy it is to kill a saltwater fish in a tank at home, the octopus is significantly more hardy than that. Mm -hmm. And again, like the sheer number of offspring and the rapid turnaround time means that any of those little quirks of genetic mutation that allow for rapid evolution could be magnified really, really quickly. So yeah. for all the sea creatures to adapt to living in a lake in the middle of Oklahoma, it seems like the octopus is a pretty good candidate. Yeah, that's actually, you've made a very, that's a genuinely very good case for an octopus that lives in the lake in Oklahoma. Or yeah. rather, a, a, a whole fleet of them. A fleet of lakes. No, a fleet of <laughs> octopus. Fleet of octopi. <laughs> octopi, octopuses. They're both correct, and I hate saying octopuses, so I don't know why I say it. Octopi. Octopi. Furthermore, the Scientific American posits, in its hundreds of millions of years on this planet, the octopus has managed to populate just about every corner, crevice, and water column of the seas, from the warm shallows of the tropics to the deep, frigid waters off the coast of Antarctica. It can even occasionally walk on land for short periods of time. I hate. Could. Yeah, I, I, you hate. I understand. <laughs> I also hate. Could the octopus conceivably adapt to freshwater as well? Bolstering the case for the Oklahoma octopus, some species of this animal are found in the brackish mouths of large rivers. But this theory has some big holes. I'm sure you saw this coming. Hmm. I mean, let's see. <laughs> First, a shift to entirely freshwater would require some extreme changes in physiology, including the basic ion transport in their cells. No cephalopod has been known to make this whole transition. Second, most of Oklahoma's many lakes, including those in question, we talked about this already a little bit, were constructed in the mid-20th century as engineering projects by damming local rivers. They are entirely man-made, so it's not like they were, you know, shallow seas that then sort of became lakes as the land sort of shifted around them. Right. And a river octopus would have to have adapted to freshwater and at some point made its way up the Mississippi and subsequent smaller rivers, swimming upstream and navigating numerous dams. So... If you're considering the possibility that it came from somewhere else and then inhabited this man-made lake, it would have to be, like, 
a, a sort of Twain-esque octopus that did an entire Mississippi River journey upstream and then also hopped a couple of lock and dam situations. Oh my god, a grand adventurer. Which, honestly, if anyone were going to do it again, I think the octopus is a good candidate. And they're wily. If the octopus really underwent such a great journey, such an unexpected journey, like uh, Bilbo Baggins style, Mm -hmm. uh, then... Honestly, let him have the lake. Let him have the lake. That's his lake now. He worked for it. I mean, at that point, yes. Like, this is a hard-won battle. This is a journey with an earned conclusion. Yeah, like, what were you doing with that lake? Not nothing. You weren't using it. It was just sitting there, going to waste. It was just sitting there. Yeah, perfectly octopusless lake. Like, what do you think was going to (laughs) happen? You have a lake. You think there's not going to be an octopus that hops in that sucker? (laughs) If you build it, they will come. (laughs) (laughs) And it is lakes and they is octopi. It is lakes, they being octopi. This was never about baseball. That's what no one will tell you about Field of Dreams. (laughs) What no one will tell you about Field of Dreams is the entire thing is a metaphor for octopus. (laughs) I bet you thought it had something to do with, I don't know, self-discovery. I've never actually watched all Uh, of Field of Dreams. The relationship between father and son. (laughs) No, it's the relationship between freshwater man-made lake and octopus. Uh-huh. <laughs> Anybody can tell you that. It is basic film analysis. Yeah, that's why I'm getting my master's, so that I can tell you guys stuff like this. I hope that's your thesis. <laughs> my thesis is now uh, my thesis is now a 40-page paper on why Field of Dreams is a metaphor for the octopus's journey. <laughs> what's so great is like that is definitely not even a good way to use the word metaphor <laughs> like we're not even talking about a metaphor at this point <laughs> i don't know what i'm talking about anymore honestly who knows i'm not even i'm not even sure i'm awake right now <laughs> this could all be a sort of grand delusion yeah we did have a very long conversation before we hit record uh the passage of time means nothing and will continue to mean nothing however yes on that note octopus <clears throat> While we are talking about the passage of time and while we are talking about Oklahoma, specifically Tulsa, Oklahoma, I would like to draw your attention to something because I have a microphone and an audience and therefore I feel obligated to bring attention to things which are relevant. Specifically, if you have never heard of this, there is a high likelihood you have not. It tends not to be taught in history classes, but it is an extremely important moment in our history. You may know we are in the month of June. The year is 2020. And 99 years ago this month was the Tulsa Massacre. Mm. Now, if we are going to talk about Oklahoma and we are going to exist in the times that we exist in, I find it important to bring attention to these sorts of things. I'm not going to waste a lot of your time with it. That's not the purpose of this podcast. And I am not the right person to be your primary source of information on this as on many other things. But I do encourage you to look into it. The Tulsa Massacre was a frankly horrifying incident in our nation's history, and it is something that everybody should know about and virtually nobody does. It's recently gotten a bit of a media boost because it was depicted in uh, season, I think episode one, season one of the new Watchmen adaptation on HBO. But if you didn't watch that, or if you watched that and assumed that it was some sort of alt history because you'd never heard of this thing before, then you should definitely look it up. As it happens, in the year 1921, 
Following World War One, there was a neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma called Greenwood, and actually it was a thriving African-American community. It was known across the nation as Black Wall Street, and it was an area of the country where the Black community was so affluent and so well-off and so utterly functional that it caused a great deal of tension with the surrounding residents. And basically what happened was there was a powder keg of tension waiting to go off. A small incident was used to artificially ignite this tension. And then over the course of, I think, 18 hours, the entire neighborhood, the entire community, we're talking dozens of buildings, hundreds of homes, and possibly 300 lives were completely lost. People were murdered in cold mm. blood, property was damaged, raised to the ground, the entire community was rendered basically unlivable. People had to spend the winter sheltering in tents as they tried to recover from what was an unmitigated act of racially motivated violence. And unfortunately, it mirrors really, really closely a lot of the things that we're still seeing today. A lot of the problems that we want to believe live squarely in the history books are being repeated, and probably because they're not even making it into the history books. Again, this is something mm -hmm. that virtually nobody knows about, <laughs> just sort of in the common cultural consciousness. We're not talking about it, and I think that we need to. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage no, you to I take agree. some time today to look up the Tulsa Massacre. You might also see it called the Tulsa Race Riot and educate yourself on it. There's an entire website from like the Tulsa History Society. You can find an incredible article that was just posted actually the first of this month on CNN.com, which also has some information on it. But I encourage you to find some own voices articles, really look into the way that this has impacted history and to educate yourself on maybe why some of these tensions are still happening 99 years later. Next year will be the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre, and it is a cornerstone of the history of the things that we are seeing today and the activism that we're engaging in. So I encourage you to educate yourself on it. I encourage you to take a moment to talk about it and to realize that of all the monsters in Oklahoma and the United States, the octopus is probably the least. Yeah. That having been said, we are going to jump back to what we were talking about initially, but again, I didn't want to leave this without acknowledging that because it did seem a little bit on the nose. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. It's one of those situations where it, it feels it's it's not it's not right to talk about it and 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 leave it unsaid. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, again, since you sort of beat me to the punch by this by just bringing a very strong intro to acknowledge what's been going on. The reason that we took two weeks off the air was absolutely to seed our space and create room for other things to happen. But to come back without actively still engaging in that conversation would, I agree, be disingenuous. And so it's something mm -hmm. that I thought we could bring attention to. And it's something that, again, I'm not going to try to be the authority on that. I'm certainly not going to sit you down here for a history lecture when it's not my history to tell. But I think that it is important. And I think that, um, you know, it's something that I only recently found out about. And we need to be really careful about realizing that even if we are people who consider ourselves to be knowledge seekers, even if we are people who consider ourselves to be well-read, even if we are people who consider ourselves to be very well-oriented in academia or uh, just consider ourselves to be generally smart human beings and pride ourselves on that, um, there are definitely gaps in your knowledge. Oh, and absolutely. And a lot of the time, those gaps are deliberately are deliberate, are, are orchestrated. Yeah, they're not coincidence. Like, there's a reason that we... As to uh, as to why people had never heard about Black Wall Street. Mm -hmm. 
and and because the educational system, particularly in America, is not built to fill those gaps, we have to do it ourselves. And that's part of our responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And furthermore, not only is it built not only is it not built to fill those gaps, it's built to create those gaps in the first place. Exactly. So while you're going about your world right now, um, if you have time to listen to me talk about an octopus in the middle of a man-made lake in the middle of the continental United States, um, I guarantee you have 20 minutes to Google the Tulsa Massacre and find something out. You know, learn mm-hmm. something new today. It might as well be something more interesting than <laughs> a giant cephalopod. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Thank you. Let's hop over to, really briefly... This website is denvermichaels.net. Denver Michaels is a self-described enthusiast for cryptozoology, the paranormal, lost civilizations, and all things unexplained. Sure. On Denver's website is an excerpt from the book by Denver Michaels. People are seeing something, a survey of lake monsters in the United States and Canada. And this portion of the book is about the Oklahoma octopus. Nice. I always like when I can find excerpts of like novels or, or books or authorial commentary because... The phraseology is just always mm-hmm. so fun. According to local rumors, a swift and deadly killer stalks several man-made lakes in the Sooner State. If true, this stealthy predator is perhaps the most bizarre, intriguing, and frightening lake monster in all of North America. It has been said that a dramatic rise in drowning incidents, accidents which have occurred under unusual circumstances, have many Oklahoma residents believing that their lakes are being stalked by an underwater predator. Some have claimed that this mysterious creature is a type of freshwater octopus. And like, I wish I could have read those two paragraphs without knowing the word octopus was coming at the end, because what a journey that must have been. (laughs) For somebody out there, that would have been incredible. In any case, according to the Army Corps of Engineers office in Tulsa, as of 2008, occurrences of drowning were happening at a rate not seen since 2001. Hmm. In mid-2008, there had already been a 40% increase in drowning from 2007. Oh my god. So in the span of a year, actually, by the halfway mark, there was already a 40% increase. That's wild. Don't really know what was going on in 2008, but maybe it was a giant octopus. What happened there? That's no, that's not good. There's not, um, I don't have, like, cohesive or comprehensive details on all of the drownings, obviously, but there is one instance from 2007 when a boy who had swum too far from shore started to drown. As he struggled to stay afloat, he cried out that something was pulling him down. A A rescue was attempted, but it was unsuccessful. The child drowned and his body was never recovered. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Oh no, that's... Oh, that's horrible. I know, it's wild. Um, so there's some more information here on this website about the actual lakes themselves, the creation of them, their sort of history. I'm not really going to go into that. We do talk what? some... No lake history? No lake history, no. This article does sort of reiterate some of the points we've already talked about. The fact that it's these three specific lakes, they're all man-made, their construction is all recent in the historical scale of things. Um, We do, again, get this horse-sized description, and I really, like, there's got to be some other size reference you can use for an octopus rather than calling it horse-sized. I hate that. Mm, Especially because, also, that's not a measure, that's not a set measurement. Horses vary in size. I know, right? And it's also not particularly helpful when you're talking about an octopus. It's like, do you mean from tentacle tip 
to a head, it is as tall as a horse? Do you mean like its sort of main body is the same size as a horse's main body and then the legs extend out from there? What does this mean? It's very vague. And again, how big is the horse? How big is the horse? Are we talking Clydesdale? Are we talking Shetland Pony? Yeah, like... Those are two very different horses. That's... Horse is not a universal system of measure. It's not a unit of measurement. You can't do that. What if it were? I mean, I'd like that very much. I wish it were. <laughs> we're measuring everything in horses from now on. It's already weird that we measure horses in hands. <laughs> That's... Yeah, that is fair. I still that don't is... understand how that works. No one at me about it. I don't want it explained to me. We measure horses <laughs> in hands and everything else in feet. Really makes you think. Damn. Do you think we measure horses in hands so that they won't get jealous of our feet because we don't have hooves? <laughs> Do you think we measure horses in hands to remind them that we have fingers and therefore establish dominance? <laughs> yeah, check these opposable thumbs out. You s- That's you right. Horse. You better not try anything. <laughs> you, you equine loser. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyway. Ooh. All right. There's a whole section here, which I don't disagree with it. The section itself is not bad. It does make some salient points. It sort of is covering the relation between the Oklahoma octopus and any possible like indigenous folklore in the area. Um, I'm not going to spend any time on it simply because, as we've said before, um, it's really easy to use that as an out for legitimizing your weird lake monster that you've come up with in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I, I don't want to lean on that. I, again, the author does make some points about like, this is probably not true and like this is not necessarily even the best way to go about looking for information on this thing but um for the sake of time and just for the sake of again we've already made this argument i'm not going to lean on looking for native american folklore in the area just to end and lend an air of legitimacy to the silly octopus story Mm mm-hmm Obviously, we believe in the Oklahoma octopus, but we don't need to believe in it because we are ascribing some sort of uh, sacred sanctity to things which we made up and then put somebody else's name on. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's an octopus. It's an octopus. It can be an octopus. It's an octopus in a lake. Yeah. But here's the thing. The other reason why I think that is kind of uh, hokey as an explanation or an out, as it were, is because it actually does seem like a lot of the information that we are given on the Oklahoma octopus traces back to, as we mentioned, the Animal Planet program Lost Tapes, which I am not intimately familiar with, but I believe what I have found is that it is sort of a, uh, it's one of those dramatically enhanced but supposedly based on a true story or like hint of a hint of sightings shows where they take evidence from people and then they reconstruct those into a dramatic narrative surrounding a particular creature or urban legend or myth as chance would have it. In this case, there Mm -hmm. was an episode on the Oklahoma octopus that premiered in 2009. There is a lot of information. And in fact, you can go directly to the lost tapes website and find like a section on the Oklahoma octopus. But The problem with the Oklahoma Octopus episode of Lost Tapes is that nearly verbatim, all of the information that you can find now on the Oklahoma Octopus, like on various websites, does seem Mm -hmm. to be taken from that source. So it seems like there's no longer any way to tell where the quote-unquote sightings or like information or facts on the Lost Tapes episode came from, and now everything else just uses the Lost Tapes as their source. So since we don't know what was created for that episode and what was like actually taken from other 
earlier sources, like primary sources. Now there's a possibility that other things which are being taken as sort of fact were just sort of created for that sake. Mm, okay. You know what I mean? So it's like yeah. now there's there's sort of one primary source and we can no longer tell what is fact or what is fiction. But I will close out by saying that if you go to the Lost Tapes episode and you sort of slog through all the information that they have on it, which is, of course, very obviously dramatized, there is a comment section at the bottom. And in the comment section, I did find a few people talking about their encounters. Okay. So the episode or the Lost Tapes article on Oklahoma Octopus was posted um, August 13th of 2012. And uh, again, in the comment section, you get a few people talking about their encounters. So here's one from someone who just identifies as Trey. I believe this octopus is real. I've seen it with my own eyes at a very young age. I do believe in it, but I do not believe it is an octopus. I think it is some sort of sea serpent. One day, me and my family were at Lake Thunderbird. We were packing up and starting to head home. Before we started walking to the car, I looked at the water one last time. What I saw was unusual. I saw a long orange wavy creature pop out of the water. I could not see its head as it had just put its head back in the water when I saw it. I tried to tell my family what I saw, but only one believed me, my mom. She caught a glimpse of the creature as well. I had no idea what I was witnessing. I had never heard of the Oklahoma octopus at the time, so it was not my brain trying to put something I saw earlier into real life. I do not know what I saw. Whether it was the tentacle of an orange octopus or a sea serpent, it was a terrifying experience. Wow, that's... Mm-hmm. Did he say a wavy orange creature? <laughs> yeah. Which I, I guess, I just... like, you know, if you're a kid and you see, like, orange, I can see that fitting in with, like, the reddish-brown description that we've gotten from a couple of other sources here. Mm-hmm. No, I, I actually, I think it's a fun description. It just made me laugh. It's very good. Um, and this is actually interesting. It seems to be almost sort of corroborated by a couple of other people in the comments. Uh, here is someone who comments. Uh, they just identify as Kai. And this is five years ago. And Kai says, I'm afraid this is no octopus, my friend, but what my people call a dragon. I do not know who Kai's people are, but apparently they call this a dragon. Well, their people call it a dragon. An old ancient serpent that lived for many centuries, usually inhabiting large body of water such as lakes. Scientists and skeptics try to be rational and think it's a plesiosaur, an extinct dinosaur with a long neck and turtle-like body. But many of my people who have seen it in the flesh with their own naked eyes say it's no dinosaur, but a huge serpentine snake with a horse-like head and crest on its forehead. Best thing to do is stay away from deep waters. Okay, sure. I mean, I know, right? It's wild. If they got dragons in them, then yeah, stay away. <laughs> uh, another comment says, well, okay, so there, again, this sort of gets nested and lost. Some other people commenting and saying, like, that's not real, whatever, this, the other thing. Tim, seven years ago, says, I don't care what you think, but I believe that something is in that godforsaken lake. You see, I had a friend named Julian Brockington, and he drowned in that evil body of water. Now, Julian was a great swimmer, so he couldn't have drowned on his own, and he was not a drunkard, so take your fake science elsewhere. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's, this person's still, like, referring to a very horrible thing that happened, but the f idea that, like, someone bringing up the fact that people could drown in lakes after getting drunk and going in the water is, like, fake science. I know, it's wild. Really hit me just just right. I'm Here's sorry. another. This is from Michelle Wyndham Armstrong, five years ago, who says, 
I happen to know a woman I attend church with who at 13 years old was at Lake Tenkiller, 1993, at their lake house, and she was swimming with a boy from California that would come down every summer to stay at the lake house beside them. She said they were in water, not out in the deep, but just far enough out they could not touch. She screamed because she felt something like a big fish rub up against her leg. The boy started mm-hmm. teasing and making fun of her about it, and within a second of doing that, he was yanked under the water, never bobbing back up, or so much as stirring under the water was able to be seen anywhere. She will not get into lake water this day over it. The waters were drugged and the teen was never found. Whoa. I know, right? Intense. Now, here's the last comment I'm going to read. Just because... I don't know. Something about the phraseology of this is amusing to me. Not to detract from the very scary story about the drowned teen. Um, But Stacy Easter says, Thunderbird has always given me the creeps. The deeper you get, the stranger it feels. Maybe it's the murky water. Maybe it's knowing people, a lot of people, have drowned there. And some have not been drinking. (laughs) Why'd you phrase it like that? (laughs) I don't know, but it's a lot. Some people, even people who weren't drunk, have drowned there. Like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. Oh my... Ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's really wild. Anyway, that's uh, sort of the note I would like to end the Oklahoma octopus on. I know this episode has been a little bit disjointed. I know we try to fit a lot in here and uh, trying to maintain our tradition of, of laughing in the darkness, despite the fact that, you know, I think... Now more than ever, we need to temper that with a very real acknowledgement of the fact that the darkness is out there and it needs to be confronted. And mm-hmm. for as much as I do value and cherish escapism and willful unreality as an important tool for coping, as well as just for an important way of, you know, choosing to shape your own experience of the world, I think that there obviously is a limit to that. And yeah. I think that we all need to be very honest and realistic with ourselves that there are times at which the ability to choose a fantasy version of the world you are living in is very much a privilege that not everyone has. And um, I would never forgive myself or us or our show or the media we produce if anyone felt they were able to use our show as a justification for ignoring the calls to action that are happening in the world is around us right now. So I want to make it very clear Mm -hmm. that we stand with the Black Lives Matter movement, that we stand with the importance of the current moment, and that we in no way, shape, or form endorse using comedy as a way to completely disengage from the reality of the things that are happening around us. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a very important moment in our history, and we need to be actively, cognizantly aware of that. We need Mm -hmm. to be actively informing ourselves at all moments. And even if you enjoy some of the softer sciences of the world, as we have been known to do ourselves, this is also a really important time to be arming yourself with much more salient knowledge. We need to be present for the moment. Mm-hmm. And I don't just, and because it, it isn't just a moment, I didn't mean to phrase it like that. No, totally. I get you, though. Yeah. Um, and so we are going to try to, you know, be back here and be around. Um, and we will be finding ways to laugh because we have to breathe so that we can jump back in. But just please know that we are... Uh, We're very serious about taking this seriously. Mm -hmm. And that's all I got. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You you said it better than I really could. But I agree completely. I want to send my love uh, and my love out to all the folks who've been protesting uh, in the streets, all the folks who've been doing the work that they can from home because it's not always 
possible to get out on the street, especially right now because people are immunosuppressed and it's simply there's some people it's simply not safe for them to be out in crowds mm-hmm. uh, with with the virus right now. Uh, but I just want to send love to everyone who's doing what they can to help and say and and thank you. And uh, we're here. We're here in this with you. And so my silly little sign off. Um, <laughs> as always, we hope we can keep you around. And stay safe out there. Lunar Light Studio. Pretty, witty, and gay.